Hello and welcome to today's BJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 19th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Barcelona, Spain. The first session at this year's meeting focused on recent updates in T-cell lymphoma, where you will hear from experts Laurence de Leval, Stephen Horwitz, François Lemonnier, and David Sibon. Hello, good morning everyone, dear colleagues. Uh, we are here in Barcelona for the 19th IWNHL workshop. Uh, this is the end of the first session, which was devoted to T-cell lymphomas. Uh, Dr. Francis Foss and I, Laurence de Leval, were chairs of that uh, session. And we are happy to discuss uh, here with three of the panelists. So um, we had an interesting session dealing with some of the biological, pathological, and clinical advances in the um, treatment of those diseases. Um, Dr. Lemonnier, Dr. Sibon, and Dr. Horvitz are here to uh, discuss some of their talks. So maybe I will start uh, the way it, uh, it happened this morning, and I will ask uh, David first, because uh, one of the topics was more specifically intestinal T-cell lymphomas. And uh, Dr. Sibon reported their experience with uh, CD30 uh, targeting in that disease. So. David, may I ask you to, to summarize the nice data you presented this morning that elicited a lot of interest by the audience uh, with, the, with the good results, unprecedented results you showed us. Yeah, thank you, Laurence. Yes, um, as a background, uh, ETL, enteropathy associated T cell lymphoma, is a rare uh, PTCL with a poor prognosis. And uh, usually, uh, the, the, the overall, the median overall survival is only seven months, and the two year OS is, uh, is, uh, is two years, uh, 20%, sorry. So uh, we need to improve, uh, improve these results. And um, ETL uh, usually strong express uh, CD30, so there is a rationale to target uh, this lymphoma with Prantuxima uh, vedotin. So we conducted a phase 2 trial uh, using BV uh, combined to uh, CHP, and responders uh, received two cycles of uh, etoposide plus methotrexate followed by autologous stem cell transplantation. The um, endpoint, the primary endpoint was uh, to your PFS, so um, 14 patients uh, were enrolled during three years. Uh, most of them uh, were at high risk or intermediate risk, so uh, with a, usually a, a poor prognosis. And uh, the, the results were pretty good because uh, the two-year PFS was 64% and the two-year OS2. Um, in terms of uh, response, uh, most of the patients uh, responded and only three patients were primary progressive and finally died uh, because they could not be uh, effectively uh, salvaged. Uh, of note, uh, two patients uh, in response uh, died from, uh, from uh, the, the toxicity of autologous stem cell transplantation. Um, so, uh, these results are, are good uh, compared to a historical control, but 
uh, we have to be uh, we have to be uh, uh, cautious with the procedure of autologous stem cell transplantation. Interestingly, um, for the nine patients uh, still uh, in response after uh, transplantation, there was no relapse uh, after medium follow-up, uh, reaching now uh, three years. Can, can I ask on that? You know, I think. Um it was interesting, I mean, the data looks quite good, but in the, the deaths on autotransplant, like we typically think a patient in remission going to autotransplant, we would quote them a 2% risk of dying from a complication of transplant. Do you think it was bad luck, or is there something about the disease or the patients that, that they're truly a higher risk category? Yes, that's a very good question. It's difficult to respond because we have, uh, the, the effective is, uh, is small, only, only 14 patients, so we cannot exclude, uh, exclude chance, but also uh, I think there is uh, some fragility of, uh, some frailty of, for, for the patient. Uh, for the two patients who died during the procedure, uh, the, um, the infection uh, came from uh, digestive uh, bacteria, the translocation. And we cannot exclude uh, that uh, that uh, the, the intestine is not uh, is not uh, as uh, as normal as uh, other uh, other patient without this lymphoma. So maybe it's chance, but maybe there is a, there is a specific uh, uh, digestive frailty uh, of these patients. Thank you, David. Is there a follow-up to this? to that study. That's a rare disease that's most prevalent in Europe, maybe northern US, but how do you plan on? Yes, n n now uh, the, the, the enrollment is closed, so uh, now we will, uh, we will uh, uh, I hope, uh, soon publish uh, the, the results. Now, for, for us, now it is a standard uh, treatment to, to use a BV uh, uh, as, uh, as in this trial for the patient. Now the question could be: uh, Do we need? Do we still need uh, autologous stem cell transplantation? Yes. Because uh, uh, elderly patient could not uh, be eligible for this treatment. And for example, can we replace it with uh, with BV maintenance? It, it's another question, and, and uh, uh, it would be necessary to, to do another prospective study if it's possible. But uh, I think it could be uh, it could be a, an option. The other thing is that uh, we need to improve the treatment for some high risk patients because. Um, we add in the study six high-risk uh, patients, and uh, three of uh, them did not respond to, to BVCHP. So we don't know. We have not a specific uh, biomarker, and it's difficult with only 40, 14 patients. But it's another challenge to identify uh, not responding patient. Thank you very much. Let's maybe move to the uh, other topics and those that were discussed by Dr. Lemonnier and uh, Orvitz were more, maybe more closely uh, related. You dealt with uh, epigenetic drugs and you, Steve, on cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and the developments uh, there. This mostly nor, uh, pertains to lymphomas that are derived from the uh, non-innate the adaptive immune system as compared to uh, the extranodal intestinal which are more separate specific uh, categories so would you like uh, Francois uh, to, to to summarize the state of the art yes. the current status for the, the topic of the talk was the epigenetic drugs in uh, T-cell lymphomas and 
this cell lymphoma has the particularity to have a, a very frequent very frequent alterations in epigenetic and um, so far single agent um, therapy with HDAC inhibitors or DNMT inhibitors such as azacitidine azacitidine has efficacy in those diseases where there are very few efficacy in other type of cancers as single agent and uh, but I think there's a consensus to say that the activity of this agent is probably not enough and we can do better and so now probably uh, we are moving to combination uh, between these epigenetic drugs and other drugs uh, that could be maybe chemo that could be other targeting drugs and, uh, and, um, and so we need to set up uh, clinical trials to assess the different combination. I think there was a very interesting discussion during the, the session regarding, okay, now what can we do in the clinical practice? Because we have the patients now, we know that the, these, these agents have efficacy, but we could do better based on the previous results and combination trials. And so we are still, you know, we are still in the difficulties with um, the, the lack of availability to drugs and to, and I think there's an emergency to, to set up trials and, to, um, and to, to have access to, to, to new drugs for combination. Are we speaking first line or relapsed refractory patients or both? No, I think so far the discussion was more uh, for the relapsed refractory patient. Uh, I, yeah, it's, a, it's a really good, it's a good debate. So what is the, be the best first line therapy? Still CHOP or CHOP's best, or CHOP best therapy? Or, Maybe could we replace job by uh, by other therapies? I think it will be the next questions. But um, so far, I think we don't have the good um, the good. Uh, because in your talk, you you spoke about the uh, roadshop trial. You said that's a negative trial, but still sub analysis uh, showed some results for TFH lymphomas. That's uh, so. What, what's your approach to uh, first line treatment of those patients? Is it? influenced by those results or I don't think people still do romidepsin shop as first line therapy you know now um, maybe the CC486 shop presented uh, you know it's only 20 patients 17 TFHPCL patients so it's a small series but the results was really good so um, I think it was to be investigated maybe in a larger study um, so for, for the first line and but Personally, you know, I'm not sure the CHOP is the good option for, for T-cell lymphomas. Um, it's just we still need to find the good, the, good the, the good treatment. And I really, I believe that a combination based on, on epigenetic therapy is a good approach for those, um, for those lymphomas. Yeah, no, I, I largely agree, though. I think, you know, like we saw with David's uh, uh, data and we see with Echelon 2 and even in Rochop, the CHOP arm, there is a cure rate there. There's a percentage of people that are cured with CHOP and, you know, at least for us in the relapse setting, we don't see cures with epigenetic therapy. We see responses and we see maintained responses, but we don't see unmaintained responses and we don't think we see cures. And I kind of think like a good lesson can come if we look at Echelon 2 and we look at Rochop. Echelon 2 added a drug that didn't add any more toxicity with BV and it selected patients who are most likely to respond and there was a statistical benefit. And with Rochop, just the knowledge at the time, it didn't select patients based on likelihood of response, which maybe we now know who's more likely and it did add toxicity. Yeah. And there's not a benefit, but in the follicular helper, there's almost be, a benefit. Be, yeah. So I imagine that 
that if you had a drug, like maybe it's azacitidine or CC486, or maybe it's an EZH inhibitor, or that added efficacy and no toxicity, then maybe in TFH, it's up front. So it would be great to get away from CHOP, I think, from frontline therapy, but we would need something better and curative. And the cure rates with CHOP, like even in EDL, what you showed, you know, more than half of those patients are alive in remission, and and yeah, um, so I, I think in the relapse we're learning what drugs work and in who and how to select those patients, and then I still favor for frontline until we have something else curative that we move that in with some sort of chemotherapy and you know in the context of trials. I mean that's I, I think I think to me that's where we are now. Maybe not five years from now, but probably yeah. two years from now. Yeah. So maybe because it's about epigenetics, uh, François, uh, as you know, I was quite interested in that uh, SETI2 gene, which is uh, mutated and inactivated in many highly aggressive T-cell lymphomas. Um, from the pathologist's perspective, uh, I read, I saw that uh, this gene also altered in solid tumors can be targeted by uh, therapies. Do you think that's... Um, potentially uh, useful for lymphomas? Uh, could it have yeah, no. implications yeah. for, for us? For sure, metal is uh, an unmet medical need. And um, so the, uh, the question is how to target the SET2 mutations. I, be, uh, I understand. So there's, there's reports saying that uh, SET2 alterations um, is, is um, correlated with a uh, dependency to we uh, to we one and maybe it could confer a sensitivity to we one inhibitor so definitely it could be uh, um, you know um, it could be a way to, to explore in, um, in clinical trial or to but still we need to have access to a good drug to, to, to test but definitely this um, is an interesting approach and uh, the other approach, the other question um, it's personally but I really that the mutational landscape of the metal actually is related to hepatotoxic T-cell lymphomas. Yes. There's a SET2 mutation, there's that SET5B uh, mutations. And now we, um, and I think the clinical experience of CHOP with uh, metal with CHOP is not good. So I, I believe that based on the very, uh, the, the relationship between uh, metal and hepatotoxic T-cell lymphoma, maybe we should we should treat the metal patient such uh, we, the, in the same way that we treat the, um, the HSTL patient, so to avoid shop as in first line and maybe uh, maybe in favor ice or or, or acidine based combination. That is a personal point of view. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and and mm -hmm. I guess contrary to what I just said about building on a chop backbone, I think there's a handful of diseases where we think chop is is not effective. We don't see survival, and that's metal and. Um, ATL and, uh, and hepatosplenic and those, yeah. So Steve, maybe would you like to, um, to, to, to summarize the broad overview you gave us about the new developments in the treatment of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas? Yeah, sure. No, I'm happy to. Thank you for the question. I was, you know, I was asked to kind of talk about what's new, so it wasn't really um, therapy directed. It was just to the disease site of, of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So I talked a little bit about the heterogeneity of the diseases, which I think we have in T-cell lymphoma. And I think the earlier talks showed really nicely that different subtypes will probably be approached differently if we're going to make progress. Um, and then just went over some of the data we have with some of the signaling targets with JAK-STAT inhibition or PI3 kinase inhibition. And if anything, those have been maybe more effective in some of the peripheral T-cell lymphomas, less active as single 
agents in cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, but we're still learning about that. I talked a little bit about the very specific uh, JAK2 fusions in, uh, in the um, aggressive epidermotropic CD8-positive T-cell lymphomas, which is a very rare subset that seems to have a very specific That biology. was very impressive, yeah. the data you showed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it really looks like in that very rare population where there's this JAK2 fusion that, that targeting that is, is going to be effective. Very hard to study because that's such a rare disease. So we now have this cohort on our study open for anyone with a JAK2 fusion to go on. But if we get five patients in a year, that will be a lot. So, you know, we'll see if, if we can build upon that. Um, and then I think the idea in immune therapy for cutaneous T-cell lymphomas makes a lot of sense. We get it's a chronic disease. We really don't want cytotoxic therapies. Those patients are at higher risk of complications from cytotoxic therapy because of the poor skin barrier. So we're really looking at data with checkpoint inhibitor, which is okay, and then some very early data with interrupting the CD47 pathway or cell therapy. And those are really you know phase one studies, but ideas to try to get some long-term remissions by looking at the immune response. Thank you, Steve. And maybe to, to, to close this uh, summary, one of the panelists could not be uh, present uh, on site. Uh, Dr. Svanirsky from uh, London talked about their clinical trial with uh, CAR T cells targeting TRBC1 and uh, showed the results that uh, we're presenting at EHA. There was a lot of uh, debate how to monitor the efficacy of those uh, CAR T cells. And uh, of course, the results are quite preliminary with uh, only uh, a small number of uh, patients. So thank you all for participating to this session. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.